Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus Podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. A couple of earnings calls to discuss this week, including one from General Mills and new product rollouts, one from Chipotle competitor Moe's and another from West Coast-based chain Wiener Schnitzel. We begin, however, with an earnings call from Darden Restaurants. This episode of the Food Focus Podcast is brought to you by Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. If you ever wonder why the water you have at home for coffee never produces coffee quite as good as the coffee you get at a coffee shop, well, Third Wave Water is the answer. Save 10% off your first order when you use the promo code FOCUS on their website, thirdwavewater.com. Well, Darden Restaurants once again beat Wall Street expectations with a solid earnings call this week and yet another boost in same restaurant sales. Now, Darden is among the few established FSRs seeing success in the current restaurant climate. And it's interesting because while Chili's and Applebee's and Dine Equity are seeing fall-offs in traffic, I think the big story coming away from this, the traffic boost on Darden's end. Absolutely. You know, and this is interesting because if you're a shareholder, you're really excited about Darden restaurants right now because on Tuesday, they actually jumped to an all-time high after this report. And the reason for that trend, as you alluded to, is they beat analyst expectations on earnings. But the interesting thing is, and we'll delve into this, but their full-service restaurants are really seeing a resurgence. They're seeing sequential growth. Diluted earnings per share came in at $0.99, and this was actually a decrease from 10% last year. While this might seem like a negative sign for the company, their non-GAAP earnings were actually up. And if we look at those non-GAAP earnings... It was $1.18 a share on revenues of $1.935 billion. Analysts has actually expected around $1.15 a share on revenues that were around $100 million less. The Cheddar's transition costs were actually making up most of the fall from the last year's earnings per share numbers, $0.09 cents to be exact on an earnings per share basis. And that Cheddar's acquisition is a very interesting deal because you and I had talked about that when it was announced, Trent. Over 100 Cheddar's locations throughout the country, and this is a very good opportunity for them to really try to leverage costs at that banner. They actually ended up closing or announcing the closing on that deal on April 24th. As with previous quarters of the 2017 fiscal year, the same restaurant sales were up across the board, although increased more pronounced in this quarter overall for the company up 3.3%. So very positive signs, a lot of excitement around Darden. And this is at a time when just last year, Trent, we were talking about a lot of pessimism, pessimism that we're still seeing from analysts talking about restaurants in both the full service and quick service arenas. Cheddar's same restaurant sales were actually not included in this release, partially because they were actually closed on in the mid quarter. But this closing of the deal was interesting because they announced a lot of opportunities for synergies that they will be looking to exploit in the future quarters. Olive Garden was up 4.4%, which continues their long string of consecutive same restaurant sales growth. And you see they're also better sequentially too. Just last quarter, in the third quarter, they saw positive 1.4% comps, which you and I were saying were very solid for the company. Now 4.4, just far exceeding expectations. Longhorn Steakhouse, which is 
been barely positive in the previous quarters, actually 0.2% up in the third quarter, came in at 3.5%, and the smaller Eddie V saw 3.3%, same restaurant sales growth. Slight increases for the rest of their banners. The only decrease in their portfolio was Seasons 52, which ended up actually having a positive quarter, albeit slightly in the third quarter of this last fiscal year. What is most interesting about their same restaurant sales is the relatively even spread across months in the quarter for the two major brands. We're, of course, talking about Olive Garden and Longhorn. Olive Garden was up at least 3.8% in each fiscal month during the quarter. And Longhorn actually 3.8% in March and 4.6% in May. So you're seeing that they're executing well in every single month. They're not blaming a particular month for being slower than others. Really seeing that restaurant sales did not increase by as much in April due to potentially the Easter shift into April this year. Still with that, a very strong company operationally. And you see that overall sales also went up across the board as Darden did open a handful of restaurants over the last 12 months. And you see that because those sales were up, therefore, by a greater percentage than same restaurant sales, overall revenue ticked up at an even greater growth rate up at Olive Garden, 4.6%. Over $1 billion came in for the first time in the fourth quarter, and Longhorn Steakhouse reporting 5.7% revenue growth as well. So Trent, very strong company, and you look at the margins, this is also something to talk about when you're talking about Darden restaurants with this earnings call. Some of the things that we're seeing elsewhere in the restaurant industry include pressure on top-line revenue or pressure to grow top-line revenue. But sometimes because of that external pressure from shareholders, you see a decrease in bottom-line margins. And this is something I wanted to look into anytime you had that robust top-line revenue growth whether it be because of store openings, whether it be because of same restaurant sales going up. Sometimes this can hamper margins as you go above and beyond the capacity of your workforce, labor costs go up, that type of thing. But when we look at Olive Garden's EBITDA margins, they actually went up as a percentage of overall revenue. They went from 19.3% last year in the fourth quarter to 19.9% this year as a percentage of overall revenue. Smaller improvements at Longhorn, they went up to 19.1% from 19.0%, and their fine dining segments were up only slightly as well, but they were still up from 20% to 20.4%. So this displays that they're not falling into the same trap of other FSRs, other operators in the restaurant industry as a whole who are growing their same restaurant sales and top-line revenue, but it's coming at a cost of their margins and their bottom line. When we take our analysis a little bit further, if you were on the conference call, you heard a lot of talk about the takeout programs beginning to gain more momentum at Olive Garden. In fact, their CEO, Eugene Lee, referenced the fact that over 12% of their overall sales come from their takeout programs, which is a pretty decent increase from prior years. This does, however, include their catering programs at Olive Garden, which were referred to during the earnings call as large party delivery. Their average check here is $300. Now, this is a major differentiator from Olive Garden as you have several large-scale FSRs. They don't have the same type of catering program and also they don't market this type of catering program. Imagine folks at Dine Equity, for example, extolling the virtues of Applebee's catering. That's just not 
not something that's available at other places. And honestly, I think other operators can take a few notes from Olive Garden and Darden as a whole and try to unlock some value that might be in these catering services. And honestly, I think one of the FSRs that could take note the most would be the new Buffalo Wild Wings management team. Wing catering could be huge for corporate events or sporting events. We talk about how people are starting to slowly trickle away from the restaurants, go more towards takeout. If you can underscore the importance of your catering business through marketing, through what have you, I think there is some value to be had for chains like Buffalo Wild Wings and even for chains like Wingstop. But one of the things I found interesting about the earnings call and based on analyst questions and analyst analysis following the earnings call, it seemed to be lost on them that Olive Garden has this ability to drive average sales up in a takeout or delivery form. Now, that being said, analysts were very positive about Olive Garden, but they have a unique structure that allows them to overcome the loss of sale of some of their high margin items. In their case, for example, wine. We talk about alcohol at other FSRs not being able to sell that in a takeout forum, but they can leverage their ability, Olive Garden can, to make vast quantities of food and mobilize their staff to deliver to drive this average check up. We talk about large party deliveries, average check being about $300. By doing that, they're erasing some of those negative impacts that you see from takeout, both on margins and in terms of average check price, and they're still able to charge a premium price for it. There was another aspect of this earnings call and then later a note released by J.P. Morgan to their investors that I found very interesting, and these regarded demographics. According to Darden themselves, 30% of their customer base is made up of millennials. Now, in case you're wondering what percentage of the U.S. population millennials make up, it depends on the study and the numbers that you're using, but the data suggests about 23 to 26% of the U.S. population is made up of the millennial set. So Darden's actually bringing in more millennials than the average U.S. population, but even better than that, they're doing so at a higher rate than other FSRs. If you look towards Brinker International's Chili's, Chili's only has 17% of their customer base in that millennial set. And this note by J.P. Morgan mentioned that only 14% of the casual dining category is millennial. Now, these numbers are skewed somewhat, at least from J.P. Morgan, as the 14% they gave is an aggregate of largely publicly traded chains, so they don't reflect this smaller localized chain. Still, Darden is having undeniable success here. And one other interesting note, 40% of Olive Garden's customers have household incomes under 60000 And I think this is reflective of two things. First, Olive Garden, which was once at a slightly higher price point compared to other FSRs, compared to other casual dining establishments, has fallen into line very close to some competitors. You take Chili's, for example, who we just mentioned, features only slightly lower average entree prices then Olive Garden, and Olive Garden has had a number of limited time offers, including offers where you can go in for dinner and they give you a second meal to reheat to take home for lunch the next day. So there are some deals built into Olive Garden's LTOs that make them competitive with the likes of the Applebee's, the Chili's out there. Second, Olive Garden's able to differentiate on atmosphere, and this could be said of all of the brands at Darden, but years of marketing for Olive Garden, the never-ending salad and breadsticks, that's starting to bear out in this data where you see a lot of lower-income families or families that aren't maybe in high-income brackets. You don't want to say low-income families if it's under 60 k but years of marketing this have created this atmosphere where people want to go. They feel like they're getting a value proposition, 
and people who don't eat out necessarily frequently would rather this Olive Garden experience where you're getting that value, you're getting the salad, the breadsticks, and something that's perceived as authentic than, say, just an Applebee's down the street where you're getting very common food in a very common atmosphere. So I think these are differentiators that are helping Olive Garden grow quarter over quarter. You mentioned, late, not only sequentially, but also year over year. Speaking of years, they also gave some guidance as far as fiscal 2018. Yeah, if you're Darden Restaurants, or again, like I said, beginning this story, a shareholder of Darden Restaurants, you're extremely excited about what they've been proving out over the last several quarters. And Trent, you mentioned and and highlighted a very important part that a lot of people are failing to recognize. And the fact that they have several banners that have been long standing inside the United States. Obviously, everybody knows of the Olive Garden and Longhorn Steakhouse. And With that comes the effective cumulative return on marketing because you see them on advertisements and within TV advertisements years over years. And you think of or you maybe throw out some names in the Italian restaurant industry or the American cuisine industry. And these types of names that they have, the banners that they hold are really the first ones that come to people's minds. So there is some value to that. So while it's not necessarily reflective on the balance sheet as an asset, their previous marketing efforts and just the overall brand awareness that they carry is truly an asset, or at least I consider it one. And I think that's really what's made them leverage their powers over the last few quarters to sustain those same store sales increases or same restaurant sales increases. And if you look at the fiscal 2018 outlook, It looks as though they are looking at some positive growth in the future. However, it was somewhat mild considering the amount of positive press they've generated over the last three to six months with both that Cheddar's acquisition and their excellent earnings calls. But they see those same restaurant sales coming in right around 1% to 2% overall, backing up their full year organizational 1.8% same restaurant sales from this last fiscal year. And you see openings across the board for them also 35 to 40, and they saw openings in nearly every other segment with the exception of Bahama Breeze last year. And they look for this pattern of growth to really continue going forward. No one brand dominated in openings last year. It is notable Longhorn opened nine locations, Olive Garden three. But you see between openings and same restaurant sales growth and the Cheddar's acquisition looking for sales growth in the range of 11.5 to 13%, which is excellent for them. And Cheddar's added 140 stores to their portfolio. This number was actually only around 9% of their prior store count, but still, you see that really contributing to the bottom line for the company. And of note, they also speculated on inflation in their forward-looking statements. They see inflation across the fiscal year coming in around 2%. And this is interesting because this is a number we've been following, Trent, for about six months now as restaurants have come in with their predictions for their full-year outlook. And it's around 1%. Some are even saying neutral pricing going forward. And if they are correct, this is important and a very important signal for everyone in the food industry, as this is one of the most robust expectations we've so far seen. But it is important to really adjust your expectations as to how this may affect their business. Obviously, all the factors of inflation don't necessarily mean that their business is going to be affected directly. As right now, the U.S. is currently seeing 1.5% inflation overall, but a lot of restaurants are reporting actually neutral pricing for their food inputs. Interesting is labor costs are going to edge up slightly, up 31.1% as a percentage of overall sales in fiscal 2016, 
up a little bit in 2017. So a lot of input costs that are going to be fluctuating, a lot to be looking forward to with Darden restaurants. Next up, we go to earnings from General Mills as they released earnings this week on Wednesday, June 28th. They reported for the fourth quarter that ended May 28th. General Mills, while based in the U.S., has presence in over 100 countries, employs 39,000 people globally. And aside from the actual General Mills brand, when we think of cereals and that type of thing, they do have a cadre of over 110 brands which include gold medal flour, Yoplait yogurt is a major player in the dairy section, Nature Valley, so granola bars and the like, Haagen-Dazs ice cream, Pillsbury, and so forth. You can see from these their products span cereal to frozen goods, vegetables, ice cream, meal kits, even soups. They have Progresso soups and spices as well as the Annie's Organics brand, which they bought in 2014 for $820 million. This was a quarter that saw contracting sales amid more competition and lack of traction in more meaningful categories. Revenue did fall year over year, 3.1% to $3.81 billion, but that still beat expectations analysts had of $3.75 billion. And what's more, and perhaps more important for General Mills, despite losing that top-line revenue, Net income was up to $408.9 million over the $379.6 million they clocked last year. This beat analysts' estimates on an earnings-per-share basis. Business Insider pointed out that they'd been looking to cut costs, taking actions similar to Kellogg Company, who we'll talk about a little bit later on in a tie-in to another story. Selling general and administrative expenses, these seem to be the main catalyst for the increase in bottom line as they dropped 10.2% to $2.8 billion in the quarter. But it's mainly a function here of less advertising. In fact, 17% less advertising. You could argue, potentially, that this was a main reason for the drop in top-line revenue, but overall, they were able to be more effective with the money they made. And Going forward, they're looking to remain price competitive, as larger retailers like Costco and Walmart are surely wanting to continuously improve customer-facing products and their pricing. What is interesting, though, is this idea here that lower advertising and less research and development spending on newer products could potentially hurt demand in the future. These are two of the main things that they've cut back, at least in this last quarter, didn't cause an equivalent drop in sales yet, which is a good sign. However, Leighton, you did mention during the Olive Garden story, sometimes advertising has a cumulative effect in the positive when you do it for so long, but that can also happen in the negative too when you stop advertising. This was a very interesting earnings call, and I would actually promote the idea to our listeners to actually read the earnings transcript if you have time to do so, because this is a company that was extremely transparent about all of their categories. And by that, I mean, you mentioned cereals as being a very large part of their portfolio there at General Mills, but they were going in specifically to each brand in the cereal segment to see how those were comped out year over year. And this is something you don't really see from a lot of food manufacturers. So it was refreshing for you and I, as we always look through earnings transcript calls and things of that nature, Trent. But overall, you see that these cost cuts and the overall slowing in momentum hurt their gross margin as it fell from 35.1% to 34.7% in this latest quarter. And this is really 
what the company has been focused on, as you had alluded to, is cutting costs in their operations. And this is really a function to try to stay competitive and to try to be more attractive on the store shelves, because obviously to get on the store shelves in Kroger or let's say a Walmart or a Costco, you have to be very competitive in price. Obviously, there are substitute goods right next to your own products, especially down the cereal aisle. Take that as a for instance there. But you see a lot of negative signs with this company, especially with organic sales, as they've really tried to boost their organic portfolio. You mentioned the Annie's acquisition about three years ago, a very hefty acquisition. A lot of people said that they actually overpaid, even despite reports of organic sales increasing year over year inside the United States. But as it is for their business, operationally, net organic sales fell 3% for the quarter. Again, a very negative sign, and the company expects continued comparable declines in the ever-growing organic segment. So we've talked at length about how this industry, the all-natural and organic segment, is actually growing inside the United States. And you wouldn't see that if you look at a company like Natural Grocers or Whole Foods that are actually struggling struggling with their same-store sales. But you're seeing a lot of increase in demand at the local Walmart and Kroger's, and you see them buying a lot more organic selection. So you have to really dig inside as to why General Mills is having these declines. You see that they have a 4% decline this quarter in North America alone. So their decline in North America is actually a little bit larger than it is globally. Full-year organic sales were actually down 5% if you span it out to the full four quarters. And seeing an equivalent demand in organic and all-natural products with convenience stores as well. So we're really wondering if maybe there isn't much room to grow from there or they need to make some more acquisitions inside the industry. But we'll talk a little bit more about their food strategy to boost those organic sales a little bit in their outlook as they talked about some marketing initiatives that they've put forth. But we move on to cereal where they also saw net sales being down 1% for the quarter with growth on Lucky Charms, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and Cheerios offset by declines in what they mentioned checks and kicks management went fairly deep into those specific brands, which was interesting as I had noted. What's interesting here is that each one of these brands does have different marketing efforts. For instance, over the last six months, you've seen a lot of advertising surrounding Cheerios, and a lot of the common consumer doesn't realize that the same parent company owns a lot of what you see on the store shelves. Yogurt was the other, and this actually made headlines. CNBC did an article about yogurt sales declining and they're actually looking to rebound and reverse this negative trend with more effective advertising and in-store promotion. They mentioned that they're going to be doing a lot of things and teaming up with retailers to try to see how they can boost yogurt sales. Management was fairly candid about why the category was seeing falling sales, and they even went back and, and delved into the last 10 years or so operationally as to how they feel they were late in getting on the yogurt trend. And specifically, they were saying that they saw the Greek yogurt trend coming, but they failed to act quickly enough. And you see that they really haven't been gaining market share in that particular category. They're looking to appeal to new consumers with different varieties too, aside from the Greek yogurt trend. One example of this is that they had previously implemented the YoPlay Lite, which they said they were trying to appeal to consumers that were interested in, obviously, things that were less calorically dense and less calories derived from sugar. So going forward, they said they'll have a Wee by YoPlay, which is a variety that comes from what they labeled a French heritage recipe. So very transparent on the ingredients there. And another sub-segment called 
simply better that will offer, again, more transparency like the Wii by Yoplait and look to showcase its ingredients and showcase what they call a simple makeup for the company. And so overall, Trent, you see this company has been seeing some struggles, but the outlook, you have some positive signs from their newer CEO, Jeff Harmoning. That's correct. Harmoning mentioned that the company's outlook remains strong. They want to leverage greater wholesale distribution globally with more convenience stores, and they want to widen out their demographics, particularly attempting to reach more Hispanic families. Also looking to capitalize on greater numbers of gluten-free offerings. For example, over the last year, we've seen them push gluten-free labeling on just about every iteration of Cheerios. And then also want to push to consumers the Big G franchise showcasing good-for-you products through digital content showcasing taste via quality of ingredients. They're looking in this circumstance at digital advertising maybe as a more effective means of marketing than conventional TV and potentially a little bit less expensive too. Another avenue through which they're attempting to market is in K-12 through schools. They're trying to get those schools on board with their quote, good cereals. Obviously, the schools for General Mills will be a center of attention, not only because of the size of the market opportunity and because you've got a captive audience, but also because many districts are looking for ways to cut costs. And if they can hedge their way on into districts that might be struggling a little bit financially, they'd be in good shape. An example might be Los Angeles, where the school system there is looking to reduce its budgetary burden while also increasingly looking to natural foods. Another thing that they're moving towards in terms of marketing is in-store sampling for all the newer products that we've talked about here. And I think this is something that you might see food brands look to as digital advertising costs begin to increase, more digital advertising expenditures being made will, of course, push the price up in the long term kind of a supply and demand rule there. And as you see them go away and try to limit marketing costs in conventional avenues like television, for example, in-store sampling is oftentimes less expensive, especially if you're a food company that has a new product rollout. If you're prideful that this product will work with consumers, sometimes giving consumers a free taste of it works better than just about any other platform. That's a mechanism that Chick-fil-A has long used to roll out new products and it seems to work very well for them. All of this marketing is in an effort to boost their brand penetration. They talked about Annie's, for example, with 60% U.S. recognition, but obviously that 60% leaves plenty of room to grow. Annie's is not yet as ubiquitous as, say, Cheerios is, for example. Overall, though, you get a sense from this call and from the other materials surrounding General Mills that it was a challenging past 12 months, as we've seen with more than a few prepackaged food companies, and they're talking about needing to work hard going forward in order to create forward momentum. Shares did pop about 1.5% on the news, or about a dollar a share to $56.42 at market close on Wednesday. However, the company is down 15% for the trailing 12 months on the market. Management does hang their hat a little bit on their dividend, which they increased to 49 cents, up one penny, which is their smallest increase, as a matter of fact, over the last six years. Fiscal 2017 did see them return $2.7 billion to shareholders. General Mills is a company that will always look towards institutional investors first. They're not an upstart company. They're a very stabilized company, and so that's one of the reasons why you see that focus on returning value to the shareholders and also the dividend. 
To the listeners of the Food Focus Podcast, do you ever wonder why the coffee you make at home never quite tastes as good as the coffee you buy at a coffee shop in your neighborhood? Let me let you in on a secret. Coffee shops spend a lot of money, a lot of effort conditioning the water they use to make coffee. And now for as little as 10 cents per cup, you can actually do the same thing only in the comfort of your own home. Third Wave Water does have a patent-pending formula of minerals that when added to a gallon of distilled water makes for that coffee brewing magic. Recently at the U.S. Brewers' Cup Championship, both the first and second place finishers brewed their coffee with Third Wave Water. Check out their website at thirdwavewater.com. Use the promo code FOCUS for 10% off your first order. That's thirdwavewater.com. Use the promo code FOCUS for 10% off couple of product rollouts to talk about in our last two news stories. We begin with Fast Casual meeting prepackaged as Chipotle competitor Moe's teams with Kellogg's to create a series of breakfast bowls that will be distributed in the freezer section at grocery stores nationwide. Now, more specifically, Kellogg's is teaming with Focus Brands and Leighton Focus, although it's a company we don't talk a lot about. They have a ton of holdings here in the U.S. Yeah, they absolutely do. It's a very big company that a lot of people haven't really recognized in the space, in the QSR space. Cat Cole is the group president and COO, and you see that under their portfolio, they have a lot of ubiquitous brands. In fact, Slotsky's, Cinnabon, and the Fast Casual Deli McAllister's that's around the Midwest area, and Mall Staple Auntie Anne's, Carvel ice cream. And then also you see the Moe's Southwest Grill in particular has 700 locations with an average unit volume in 2015 of around $1.25 million. And this is actually for restaurants open at least three years. Kat Cole, as I mentioned, is the CEO and president of the Focus Group. And she said that the Southwest flavor profile is growing in appeal, but until now, not widely available in the breakfast category. And this is something we'll speak to a little bit later, but breakfast has been something that everybody is really trying to get a piece of, both with prepackaged foods and the QSR segment. Cole was just named COO and president of Focus earlier this month or about 10 days ago. But if you look at her experience and her public profile, she has a lot of experience in the restaurant industry and in the prepackaged industry. So she really is no stranger to these types of business offerings. And you look at the details of the line, all of the bowls that we're going to be talking about, five in all, have at least 12 grams of protein. It ranges from 12 to 17 grams of protein. And what is interesting, if you go to the website, you see the nutrition facts, and it's all fairly respectable as far as the calorie content is concerned, with most around three to 400 calories per bowl. The highest is the chorizo and eggs at 380 calories. Sodium does run high, as with most prepackaged foods, around 800 milligrams or about one-third of your recommended daily serving. The ones with meat do have hormone-free meat, which is something that they're going to exploit in terms of the positive PR, but all are also gluten-free, no artificial flavors or colors. And another thing they do with these bowls is to tie in the Moe's restaurant staples to each product. So this is going to help branding with the restaurant chain and try to promote them in store as well. For those that haven't been to a Moe's as they are a little bit less ubiquitous than the Chipotle or Qdoba of the world, they have staples that include the cilantro, lime, rice, and a large line of salsas. And Trent, you can speak to how they're really trying to leverage these different tastes and flavors, trying to promote the Moe's Southwest Grill here and, and trying to do something that a lot of other QSRs and FSRs have been doing in the retail sector. 
they are very well known for both their salsas and their line of queso. And you mentioned all of these bowls right around eight ounces. They have five different bowls that they're rolling out, at least at first. Chorizo and eggs, which has eggs, cilantro, lime rice, pork chorizo, black beans, pico de gallo, and their queso. They have a chorizo benedict, which is incredibly unique, with eggs, Yukon gold potatoes, pork chorizo, pico, jalapeno lime hollandaise, and avocado. And originally when I saw it, I felt like it was going to be the calorie leader among these five, but this is very reasonable from a nutrition perspective. Just 280 calories, 680 milligrams, which is 28% of your daily value of sodium, which is lower actually than every other offering they have. Most Benedicts are actually pretty high calorically as a result of the hollandaise sauce, but they've found a way to infuse the hollandaise sauce with flavor despite adding a ton of calories. Each one of these bowls, by the way, provides 12 to 17 grams of protein, and the chorizo benedict comes right in the middle with 14. They have a Southwest vegetarian, so a completely vegetarian offering with eggs, salsa verde, roasted tomatillo salsa, fresco, queso fresco, and avocado all stuffed into that. They have chicken chilaquiles, which are eggs, pulled chicken, pinto beans, salsa, queso, and then cilantro all over tortilla chips. And finally, the classic huevos rancheros, which is a fried egg atop black beans, salsa rojo, which is one of, again, their popular salsas, pico, queso fresco, and a corn tortilla all into that single bowl. A few interesting notes here. First, distribution is set initially for Walmart, Wegmans, and Giant Eagle for late June. Walmart being the largest grocer in the U.S., so very important that Kellogg's is able to get Moe's products in there. Kroger and HEB will follow in July, so between their June and July rollouts, they have a huge share of the grocery market covered, including the number one and two brick-and-mortar grocers in the U.S., and I think what's more interesting potentially than anything about these breakfast bowls is that Moe's inside the restaurant doesn't actually sell breakfast bowls as far as most are concerned. Instead, you can get what's called a streaker on their breakfast menu, and that essentially is a breakfast bowl. As Leighton alluded to earlier, in most cases, the existing popularity of a brand will help to sell the prepackaged goods. We see this often with Taco Bell, Bob Evans. Cracker Barrel, TGI Fridays, and so forth. All of them have products in a grocery store and many of them in the freezer section of a grocery store. Here, though, it may actually be the other way around as Moe's might be able to leverage the Kellogg's distribution network to introduce grocery customers to some of Moe's in-store breakfast offerings. Not all Moe's, as far as we can tell, serve breakfast. A lot of them do, however. Moe's is the largest fast casual Southwestern grill, in fact, to serve breakfast. If you look at the others, Qdoba, Chipotle, and even if you want to include Costa Vida, which is more coastal than Southwest, those restaurants do not. Freebirds also does not serve breakfast. Moe's currently has 691 locations, several of which are co-opted into sea stores or truck stops. But the more they grow out, and they do plan to grow over the next two years through franchising and other mechanisms, the more this brand recognition will help them, especially as they grow into markets where maybe their prepackaged food was available in a grocery store, but not available in store. And although Kat Cole noted white space in the Southwestern flavor segment of breakfast in her quotes along with this, we look at it kind of differently. We see white space in the entire fast casual breakfast segment as a whole. Mostly when we discuss breakfast offerings, we look at QSRs and convenience stores. 
Here, we see an opportunity to leverage Moses' brand and Kellogg's distribution network both into something much larger. I feel like Moe's could chomp away at market share in an increasingly competitive, fast, casual atmosphere that's now just jam-packed with competitors. We've talked in the past about breakfast being a bullet in Chipotle's gun that they're kind of holding there, much like dessert was until they began to tinker with it a little bit more recently. The same is true of fast casual burger chains and even fast casual pizza places. We know to see store like Casey's, for example, having success with breakfast pizzas, Quick Trip, another convenience store having success in that space. This is just another option for those fast casual restaurants to differentiate themselves. And Moses really sticking their neck out here with this product offering by teaming with Kellogg's in this way. And you'd have to think this will mean positive things for focus brands going forward. Yeah, and you mentioned two key words there, differentiators and market share. And I think with breakfast, you're seeing that a lot of operators are wondering if they should go ahead and pull the trigger. But once you do, you have to go all in. And it's one of those things that if you look back and, and look at McDonald's history, they were waiting years off of analyst pressure and shareholder pressure to have their all-day breakfast rollout. And then when they finally did, you saw a pop in sales. But then in time, those kinds of things taper off and you get other competitors in the space. So if their competitors look to offer breakfast, they're going to be having to go all in and invest not only in the marketing efforts, but expand their menus and potentially their offerings inside the stores, which make it a little bit more hard for those employees. And you often have to extend out hours as well. So a lot to take in and an interesting dynamic with that teaming up there with brands and the entrance into the grocery retail sector. And we move on in the vein of market share. California-based Schnitzel debuts a line of gourmet burgers designed to nip at that very market share. And if we look at what Schnitzel is and the chain overall inside the U.S., this is actually a first time for us covering the chain so we're actually a little bit excited to discuss what's been going on with the company. And the company is a classic QSR, having restaurants in 11 states with 320 individual locations. And obviously, as the name would indicate, they primarily serve hot dogs, and that's what they're most known for. But they also have smaller hamburgers. They also have a line of chicken sandwiches, which seem to have really served as an inspiration for their new burger rollout and the different varieties that we'll be discussing here shortly. But they also promote their Tasty Freeze soft serve. This is interesting because they do have a few very well-known offerings at their individual restaurants. And what's interesting is they have been slow to grow over the past few years, but locations are spread out throughout the West Coast, South and Midwestern U.S., with an additional location in Guam. They are privately held, so that really is one of the reasons why they have grown so slowly over the past few years. But they've been able to boast the fact that they are the world's largest hot dog chain. As I've talked about the slow growth for the company, they actually opened their first location in 1961 in Southern California. Their founder, John Gillardi, opened the first location, and it was primarily a hot dog setup. The establishment is family-owned. The family openly states on their website that they are looking to keep ownership in order to serve many future generations. And per the company's press release, Gallardi's heir shows up. He said that our customers like bold, flavorful food and customizable toppings. So this really ties into what we're about to talk about with the different toppings on these gourmet burgers. But because of their unique restaurant model, their locations do vary drastically. 
in both size and layout, which makes for a more localized feel in those individual states that they operate. And many newer locations do have drive throughs If you were to compare this franchise with, say, another family-owned operator in White Castle, they do franchise out, however. They promote six years of same-store sales growth, low operating costs, and something that I mentioned earlier, a varying store footprint. So really trying to work with franchisees into maybe working with a smaller location or maybe a strictly drive through location. So a very interesting concept and again, one we really haven't talked about much. So let's talk about the burgers now. While the chain is widely known for its hot dogs, as Leighton already alluded to, this seems like something the company has been contemplating for a while and they admit as such in their own release. They claim to have been testing these burgers for over a year, which is a rather long time for research and development when you compare it to other QSR operators like, say, Taco Bell. They are not new to the burger space. Leighton mentioned their chicken sandwiches. They've had a chili cheeseburger for a while, making use of the chili that would otherwise go on the hot dogs to pour it over a burger. But this is their first rollout of gourmet burgers that are 50% larger in terms of patty size. There will be three additional burgers adding to that chili cheeseburger in all. There is a classic burger that has Thousand Island dressing on it, the barbecue bacon cheeseburger, and the blazon bacon guacamole burger. We see some capitalization of trends here. Barbecue, of course, and bacon has been on trend for fast food restaurants now for a good 20 years, but we see guacamole popping up as well. Also on trend, the garlic spread that they are putting on each of the buns for these burgers. Now, the price point for these burgers is around $2.69, which seems like a steal, basically, when you compare it to burgers at other chains, especially when you take into account where Wiener Schnitzels are largely located in the American West and Southwest, where prices at most QSRs tend to run just a little bit higher. So 269 is an excellent price point as far as a lot of onlookers are concerned. It really connotes the fact that Wiener Schnitzel is focusing on value here. They are using a line of TV commercials to help introduce the new lineup. There's a somewhat questionable musical or jingle that goes with it. Historically, actually, Leighton and I have both questioned their ad campaigns overall, although we haven't talked about it here on the podcast. They had a one-time slogan last decade, Taste the Durr, and it was a slogan that just didn't translate very well, especially to their sizable number of radio broadcasts that they sponsored. Of late, Wiener Schnitzel's LTOs, or limited-time offerings, have been all over the place, including actually selling Schnitzel as what was more or less a publicity stunt. This not an LTO, though, or at least not indicated as such by the company. These three new burgers appear to be permanent additions to the menu at Wiener Schnitzel. We'll keep our eye on them to see if they pull them off the menu or retain them on the menu, but... By putting these on the menu permanently, this also opens them up for new LTOs during the rest of the summer. They also suggest in their own release that this rollout is intended for hot dog fans who also like hamburgers as a way to order both in one sitting. But it seems far more likely to aim to sate members of a family who maybe don't like hot dogs or prefer burgers. And we note that in a family setting, and Wiener Schnitzel knows this just as well as we do, It only takes one family member not liking a product or not liking a restaurant 
to encourage that family to stay away from that particular QSR. So if you have a family member, maybe it's a picky kid, maybe the dad doesn't like hot dogs or doesn't find them filling enough, Wienerschnitzel now offering these burgers gives customers another opportunity to satisfy all members of a family. And this was actually alluded to in Domino's Salads ad campaign over the last year or so as they talk about how salad eaters can sometimes ruin pizza night as an example. The same type of thing at play here for Wiener Schnitzel by bolstering their burger offerings. They can speak towards people that maybe don't like hot dogs all that much, and I think that's important for them going forward, especially if they continue to expand in order to continue to drive up that same restaurant sales growth. Well, we finish up the Food Focus podcast today by talking about a product that's new to the world of food, or at least new to us, that we tried over the last week. And Leighton, I know you did some traveling this last week. Did you try anything new or different? I did. I went to a pizzeria locale, which is a restaurant that we talk about oftentimes. Parent company being Chipotle there, and they have seven locations across the United States. Haven't really been growing, but their locations span Missouri, Kansas, Colorado, and Ohio. I had actually gone to a pizzeria locale one other time in their home of Denver. This time, I actually tried something new, so I decided that I should probably be discussing it on this edition of the podcast. I tried the spicy chicken pizza, which has mozzarella, red onions, basil, oregano, roasted red peppers, and garlic oil. And you see that overall, they say spicy chicken, Trent. That is to say the least. That is to say mildly. This was a very spicy pizza, and I actually ended up having to take some of these peppers off of the pizza to make it palatable. But I should say there is a caveat in there that I really don't like spicy foods in general anyway. I try to shy away from a lot of spicier Mexican foods and things of that nature. But Overall, it was a very delicious pizza once I took and picked those red peppers off of the pizza, and it's at a very good price point, $7. The typical pizza at a pizzeria locale is around $7.50, and that actually includes their customizable options and both the red pizzas and the white pizzas. But this is what really fascinated me was not only the quality of the pizza, which we have talked about as being their key differentiator time and time again, but It was really the quickness between the time of ordering, so me checking out, giving them my credit card, sitting at the table, and then getting the pizza delivered to my table was about six minutes. So I don't know any other location that could provide that level of quality, that level of atmosphere, and bring the actual product to me in such a short period of time. So I was extremely thrilled, and to be honest with you, I'm a little bit saddened after having gone to this pizzeria locale, that there's actually not one closer to where I live. But overall, this is a very good concept, and I would hate to see Chipotle divest this like they did Shophouse. Longtime customers of the grocery chain Aldi know that there are special releases and then there are year-round products that they carry. And in this case, Aldi turned one of their special releases into a year-round product about six months ago, and I'm only now getting around to try it. Basically, there are a series of three Indian simmer sauces that Aldi has added to their regular lineup, including tikka masala, korma, and jalfrezi sauce. Typically, I would go to, of course, an Indian restaurant or make my own sauce at home. I'm a huge fan of Indian food, have it probably two to three times per week, and these were worth a try as these sauces came in at a price point of about $2 per container. 
It came in a glass jar, I want to say about 16 ounces. And of the three, I actually found the tikka masala sauce to be one of the most authentic tikka masala sauces I've had out of an actual jar ever since I started eating Indian food about 10 years ago. The korma sauce was pretty good. I think the the raisin presence that's typically in a korma sauce was understated. The Jalfrezi sauce was good if you let it simmer for a long period of time. It helped to bring the smokiness out. But overall, between those three sauces, tikka masala was my favorite, followed up by, I, I would say, probably the korma sauce I liked quite a bit. And these are all, again, at Aldi for about $2 a jar, but much cheaper than a lot of other Indian simmer sauces at other retailers. Target, for example. That'll do it for us here on the Food Focus Podcast. For Leighton, I'm Trent saying so long until next week. Coming up this week on the Retail Focus, we'll discuss the Walgreens Rite Aid deal and the fallout from that deal not going through as planned. We'll also talk about Pier 1 Imports' latest earnings and Staples going private. That's coming up this week on Retail Focus. Make sure and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast delivery service, including now Podbean for the Food Focus, and we'll see you next week. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 